Well, we are coming to the home stretch of our series in Ephesians, where we're re-walking through those first three chapters and considering, as we get started this year, how the Lord is calling us to love and to serve his church together. And uh, this morning, we want to consider what is the power of the local church? What is the power of the gospel? Is it bringing you all up front here and slaying you in the spirit? Is it finding huge missions or buildings to build or establishing multiple programs that reach out into the community? What is, as we come to God's word, really the sign and the affirmation that God is at work and that indeed his church is powerful? Well, we want to take you back again to the night before Jesus was crucified. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, 36, that that evening Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And though Jesus' disciples didn't fully understand what was happening, their stomachs were full. The Last Supper had happened. They were tired and they were on their way to falling asleep. What they were aware of or what they did understand to some degree was Jesus' command. This didn't come as a surprise to them. them having followed Jesus for the past three years, they knew that Jesus was a man of prayer. They knew that Jesus' habit and his pattern, especially in the most intense and demanding times of his ministry, was to withdraw to a quiet place alone, to pray in the Spirit to his Heavenly Father. They had watched him, and they knew that it was this time alone in the Spirit with his Heavenly Father in prayer that gave Jesus a comfort and a rest and a strength for his ministry that the world did not have. And the clear testimony of Jesus' earthly life, which his disciples got to see up close, was that Jesus, throughout his gospel ministry, in the face of adversity and persecution, Jesus lacked for nothing. As I've said before, it did not appear that he was in a hurry. It did not appear until that time in Gethsemane as the wrath of God was coming upon him, that he was distressed. Jesus lacked for nothing. And neither did his disciples as long as they were with Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is the power and the sufficiency of Christ's love and his work and his prayer for his disciples. And this is also the good news that the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, that everything a local church in a foreign Roman city under which they are increasingly experiencing persecution, everything that they need to glorify God, they have in Christ. 
and our power and our sufficiency as Christ's church is not dependent on the size of our bank account, the size of our programs, the size of our talented gifts and abilities. The good news of Ephesians 1 through 3 is our power and sufficiency as Christ's church is dependent on our union with Christ. And that, brothers and sisters, is as true of our marriages and our relationships and our work and our ministries as it is of the life of the local church. Paul will go on to point out in light of this, all that God has called the church to do. And it's helpful to read through, and I encourage you after today to go and read Ephesians 4 through 6 and see God's calling of what they are to do in light of what Christ has done in their lives. In fact, Paul is pointing them back to say your sufficiency is based on what God has done in Christ in your lives. You need not despair. You need not give up hope. If you just consider what God has done in your life and the greatness of the work of the gospel at work in you, everything that you need, you will understand God has blessed you and given you in Christ. And so that raises the questions, brothers and sisters. What about you? What about me? What about our church? What about our marriages? What about our ministries? Are we powerful and are we sufficient in Christ? As Ted said earlier this morning, is Christ enough? And the answer is often found in how we pray and in how we love and care for one another. Those tend to be the weather vanes of our power and our sufficiency in Christ. And this morning as we return to Ephesians chapter 3 and we come to the Apostle Paul's prayer, Christ shows us the sufficiency and power of his perfect and powerful love for his beloved bride, which is also known as the church. And this is why the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus is not that they would grow in wealth or that they would have a church building or that they would grow in size or ministries. His prayer for them is that they would grow and mature in their unity with Christ. Paul is well aware, as is the testimony of God's word, that if we are growing in our unity with Christ, if we are growing in Christ, with him we have everything we need to be pleasing to God in the hardest and most difficult of times. And that's very much Paul's situation as he's writing this epistle, as he is a prisoner and an ambassador in chains in Rome for the sake of the gospel. And so this brings us to our big truths for this morning and for this sermon. If I could have my next slide, please, AV team. Thank you. Christ's church is sufficient and powerful, not in ourselves, not in our ministries, not in all the things that we do. Christ's church is sufficient and powerful in Christ. And her greatest need the bride of Christ, and that's you and I if we belong to the Lord. Our greatest need 
is to grow in Christ's perfect love. That is our need. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 7 to 22. And our focus is going to be on the end of the chapter, verses 14 through 22, or 21, excuse me. Ephesians 3, 7. This is the word of the Lord. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow, this is the word of the Lord. It's worth noting, brothers and sisters, the context of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. According to the world's standards, unity with Christ had made the saints in Ephesus weak and vulnerable and poor. Ephesus was a rich and powerful city, and much of its wealth and power centered around its temple, the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this temple and the worship of Artemis or Athena was the center of business, the center of politics, the center of life, the center of trade. And because of their unity with Christ, the local church in Ephesus and the saints in Ephesus had become cut off from all the advantages and benefits that came from life in Ephesus. The banking, the food shopping, the trade, the networks for the guilds, all of those things that were all tied and took place and revolved around activity in that temple, they were cut off from. And instead of worshiping in this world-class monument of the ancient world, where did they now gather? 
They gathered in homes, increasingly persecuted and looked down upon for worshiping rather than a massive statue in a massive building, a God who could not be seen and singing praises to his son who was a convicted and crucified criminal. By the world standards, they were fools and losers who would sacrifice the security and future of their livelihood and their families for what the world deemed as worthless. What's it going to do for you now? How is this going to pay your rent this week? How is this going to get your kids into a good college or secure their future? They had sacrificed everything according to the world for a worthless and powerless faith. Now, brothers and sisters, I say this because it can be easy for us to feel the exact same way, even though our persecution is probably minuscule in comparison to that community in Ephesus. It can be easy to feel that way in our marriages. It can be easy to feel that way in our careers. It can be easy to feel that way in our relationships. It can be easy to feel that way in our ministries and in the church, especially when our eyes are focused on the things of the world and the things that Satan tells us we do not have but would make our lives better. And that, brothers and sisters, includes looking at other churches and other programs and other places that have things that we don't have. A consumer mentality, which if we're honest with ourselves, we've been raised on, we've lived. It's what's gotten us through college and our degrees and where we are and the homes we're in. It's in our DNA and it's in our blood and it's in our flesh. But in Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul writing as an apostle and a prisoner of Jesus Christ, he points our eyes where? To the gospel and to the unsearchable riches of Christ and to the good news of God's holy love in Christ. Once dead in their trespasses and sins, it is this perfect love of God in Christ that has united the saints in Ephesus together with a man named Paul. And it is this perfect love in Christ that has made them together, redeemed, forgiven, alive together in Christ. It is this perfect love of God that has made them adopted and has exalted them as children of the Most High God. And it is this perfect love of God in Christ that has sealed them with his Holy Spirit and has made them part of his beloved family. And it is God's perfect and powerful love for them demonstrated on the cross that has made this local church in Ephesus, part of God's masterpiece of grace in Christ, built on the cornerstone of Christ Jesus himself 
and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, a living temple, not one that is now torn down, a living temple that is a testimony to God's immeasurable grace and his perfect love for them in Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is what has made that church in Ephesus a powerful church. It is their unity with Christ, and it is their unity in Christ. And that is what serves as a testimony to what men cannot see, but they reap the benefit from, on a daily and regular basis, God's infinite love for his church. And this is what moves the Apostle Paul to pray and to write in verse 314, for this reason, because of God's perfect and powerful love in Christ, because of the witness and testimony of what the church is, our unity with Christ and in Christ, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Gospel power and gospel prayer come from gospel unity in Christ. Gospel power and gospel prayer come from gospel unity in Christ. Now, as we come into this prayer of the Apostle Paul, if we're honest with ourselves, everybody prays. Even atheists pray, right? Even people who don't believe in God pray. I was at Joshua Tree once and I bumped into a man he wanted to talk. I didn't particularly want to talk, but he wanted to share with me what he'd seen at Joshua Tree, how he went up to a high point, the overlook of all of Joshua Tree, and how he stood up there and told me with a smile how he looked out and gazed, and he sent good thoughts out to all his friends. And after he did that, he took a moment of silence in the middle of our conversation and looked off and gazed out, and I'd assume he was sending more good thoughts out to his friends. Now we laugh at that, right? Because it is ridiculous, okay? But whether you're a pagan lighting incense to your ancestors or you're a politician sending thoughts and prayers to victims of natural disasters or school shootings, sadly for most of us, prayer is a powerless exercise of wishful thinking an exercise in self-absorption about our desires and fears. And sometimes prayers can actually make us more stressed out than we were before as we focus in on what we need or we do not have. Everybody prays, brothers and sisters. It's who you're praying to and what you're praying for that sets things apart. And very clearly, as we come into the Apostle Paul's prayer in 3 verse 14, the Apostle Paul's prayer is different. Like his life and his ministry, his prayer is powerful. Why? Because like his life and ministry, the Apostle Paul's prayer is an expression of God's powerful and perfect love in Christ working in and through his life. It's an expression of a love that works all the way to the cross and the resurrection. 
And in Ephesians 3, 7 through 14, the Apostle Paul uses the Greek word for power four times. And that word is dynamis, from which we get the word dynamic or dynamite. In the history of the world, the history of America, history of Canada, dynamite is what they used to destroy large blocks and portions of mountains and the cliffs in order to find a way through and to remove barriers that before that couldn't be removed. You'll recall the saying, not a Chinaman's chance. Now that referred to our ancestors' gambling patterns and the gold rush, but it also referred to the little men like me, who they get to hold the dynamite and go into those holes and buildings in order to blow the hole through. Power. Power that can destroy, but power to remove barriers and what separates and what men can't move. And Paul makes reference to that four times. And what is the power that removes the barrier of sin and self-absorption that separates us from God and from one another? Well, according to Ephesians 1 through 3, it is the love of God in Christ. And according to Ephesians 1 through 3, God has already done that for the saints in Ephesus. He's torn down the barrier of sin and hostility. And the barrier of the law that had separated these Gentile believers with all their idols from the love of God in Christ and from God's people. It had already happened. This power was already at work in them as the Apostle Paul wrote to them. And it's in verse 14 where Paul says, For this very reason, he bows his knees before the Father. And throughout Scripture, this phrase, bowing one's knees, it's an expression of submission and service to the power and authority of one's rightful king. It's clearly this bowing of knees. This is not wishful thinking. It's not even simply just petition. It's what we read this morning when we went through Psalm 16. That phrase also, to call upon the name of the Lord. That idea of calling on the name of the Lord is not just shouting in a loud voice. Calling on the name of the Lord, bowing one's knees. In the ancient world, calling on the Lord, that is a phrase and that posture, getting down on one's knees, that is what a servant or a slave did when they were brought into the presence of the king and because of the power and authority of that king and because of the proximity and the presence of that king, that bowing was a sign of submission and servitude and the calling on the name was a way of saying, you are my Lord, I belong to you. It was a covenant vow or pledge that your life belonged to the king before whom you stood. So we read in Genesis 41:43, as Pharaoh appoints Joseph ruler over Egypt, he commands all of Egypt to what? Bow the knee as Joseph's chariot goes by. And in Exodus 25, the second commandment, what does the Lord say? He says, you shall not bow down to idols or serve them. And then Psalm 95, 6, oh, come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. 
And brothers and sisters, what is it that brought Paul to his knees? It was not wishful thinking. It was a proximity to a very real power, to a very real presence, to a very real authority, to the king to whom he had been purchased and to whom he belonged. And who is this king who brings the apostle Paul to his knees? ushered into the courts of the king. The idea is you don't get access to the king unless the king calls you, he invites you, he brings you. It's not, I'm going to wake up this morning and I'm going to go see, going to fly to London, Buckingham Palace, knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here. Who is this king who brings the apostle Paul to his knees? Verse 15. It is the king from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's a reference to God as the sovereign creator of the universe, the one who has authority and power over all of creation. And yet, because of the Apostle Paul's unity in Christ, what does the Apostle Paul call this king? Father. Father. Brothers and sisters, what is gospel prayer? It is not wishful thinking. It is the love of God in Christ bringing us into the very presence of God's power and authority as his beloved church, as his children, to speak to him as our Father. And what is the power of gospel prayer, brothers and sisters? It's not the act of prayer. As Jesus says, it's not our many words, it's not the things that we say, it's not Aladdin rubbing a lamp, and if we rub it in the right way, the genie comes out. It is the power of a believer's unity in Christ. And it's because of that relationship and because the boundary of sin has been removed, and we have this moment of intimacy with God, both in his power and authority, but also his perfect love as a perfect father because of the cross. There is power in that moment. There is intimacy in that moment. There's a relationship that changes things. And it's worth asking, brothers and sisters, and I have to ask this of myself, how often can we be so self-absorbed in our needs? How often can we be so self-absorbed sometimes in our prayer pastors especially, that we can't see how great our God is, how close he is, and the work that he is already actually doing in our lives because of Christ. Now, when my boys were small, Ethan's already as big, if not bigger than me, which is no major accomplishment, but when they were small, they would run to me all the time for everything. And that's the sad thing is your kids get bigger, right? They don't need you anymore because they think they can do it better than you can. But when they were small, they would come to me all the time for everything. Why? One, I was able to help and they needed something that needed to be fixed. Two, it's because I happened to be around. I was available. But I'd like to think more importantly that they came because not only did they know that I was their father, but they knew I was a father who loved them. And brothers and sisters, this is what makes gospel prayer powerful. 
And this brings us to our second point this morning. Gospel prayer pleads for strength, love, and unity in Christ. Gospel prayer pleads for strength and love and unity in Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's not wrong to go to the Lord with our needs. Have you lost a job? It's not wrong to ask the Lord for help in finding a job. Do you desire to be in a relationship? It's not wrong to ask the Lord for a relationship. Are there things broken? It's not wrong to come to the Lord and ask him for things that need to be fixed. As our Father in heaven, he delights and he loves his children. He delights as they run to him and come to him and look to him to put the things in their lives that are broken back together again. But it's important that we don't miss out on what's most important. As our children grow, if all we do is fix their toys, there's something missing in that relationship. And our Heavenly Father, in his love for us, desires for us to grow in his love. And this is what you see in the Spirit-led prayer of the Apostle Paul in verses 16 through 19. His petition, his desire is that God would give the saints in Ephesus everything they need to mature and grow in Christ, beginning with spiritual strength. His prayer for this church is that they would mature and grow, but very specifically that they would mature and grow in love, a love that looks like Christ and not like the world. And for that, he begins and takes a step back, and the first request is for spiritual strength. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Brothers and sisters, where does the strength come from to walk by faith with Christ? Where does the strength come from to endure in obedience in the midst of storms in this life, suffering, being pressed, hard decisions? Just looking at the life of Christ and the life of the Apostle Paul, it does not come, brothers and sisters, from trying harder. It does not come from more self-discipline. It does not come from more training or more education or even more accountability. You can train a dog to beg and you can train a child to sit still in church. But that is not going to enable that child or that dog to lead in love or to endure in love in the face of adversity. The strength to walk with Christ by faith, especially in the storms of life, comes from God alone. And you'll recall that the Apostle Peter learned that lesson first time as he watched his Savior being tried in the courtyard of the high priest and separated from Christ, he was unable to last a few moments by the fire without betraying his Lord and Savior. When we think of our lives, brothers and sisters, of how we love and care for one another, I've realized in my own life 
so often my frustration when I tell people once or twice in order to try and protect them from something that's going to be destructive in their life. But they don't seem to listen. They go down that path and their lives are broken and damage is done. But I look at my own life and say, when I look at my frustration, when I look at my annoyance, grievance fine. How much am I depending on my warning to change their life? How much better I would be many times to pray rather than repeatedly talking to people when the warning's been done, to realize that it is not my word that is going to change a heart. But instead, I am able to hope in a God who is able to save someone like the Apostle Paul, who saw the miracles of the apostles, who saw probably Christ being crucified, who saw Stephen being stoned, who witnessed the early church happening, and he denied, 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 and persecuted and persecuted and persecuted until Christ himself came face to face with him on that road to Damascus. And brothers and sisters, that is so desperately what we need, and this is what the Apostle Paul is praying for. Verse 16, he appeals not to our self-discipline or our training, or our ability to fix one another, he appeals to the riches of God's glory, all that God is. And so the Apostle Paul asks his Heavenly Father for what only his Heavenly Father can give, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. And the word for strength the Apostle Paul uses here describes a strength that prevails and conquers in battle. And what is the spiritual battle every child of God is engaged in? Every one of us, brothers and sisters, is engaged in a battle with Satan, the world, and our flesh, all of which are trying to separate us from the love of Christ. Just think of getting up for church this morning. There's a battle going on for where we should be. Let's not minimize that. It is a real battle. When we wake up in the morning to pray and to read the word, when we're tired in the evenings, what's easier? Netflix or the Psalms? There is a battle, brothers and sisters, in every aspect of our life, and that battle is to separate you from the love of Christ. And it's the battle that began in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. It's not rocket science, brothers and sisters. It's very simple, and it's the same game plan over and over again. And what is the only power, brothers and sisters, that's strong enough to prevail and conquer over our flesh, our world, Satan? Brothers and sisters, it's not your power and mine, and it's not doing more push-ups. And it's not getting a new Bible reading plan. You should have a Bible reading plan. But this appeal from Christian publishers, right? This book, I got this book, I got this program, I'm part of this thing. This is going to make it work. It's the love of God and Christ in your heart and soul, brothers and sisters. And it's growing in that that is going to enable you to overcome It's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you that comes in and convicts us and exposes hidden sin, but also does so drawing us to the only remedy, which is the love of God and Christ. 
also known as the gospel, what God has done to save sinners through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's the power of the Holy Spirit applying Christ's word and his work in our hearts to put off whatever separates us from Christ and to put on the mind and ways of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even if it hurts and it costs us. And in verse 17, the Apostle Paul explains why he is asking God to give this strength and to give this power of the Spirit to the saints in Ephesus. Verse 17, he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what? Faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, as we read this, what's the question? Does, doesn't Jesus already exist in the saints in Ephesus' lives, right? Didn't Paul go through that in chapter 1 and chapter 2? So what's he here talking about? Asking for strength that Christ may dwell in their hearts. After Julie and I got married, Julie actually moved in with me. I know that sounds amazing, and it was amazing. She showed up, and her sisters came with her, and she brought all her stuff. And, and I thought I was, let me just say I was immature and very proud of myself. I thought, oh, this is a great thing. I got a house. I'm a great provider. She's got a place to live and stay. We're in West L.A., and... Beverly Wood, just south of Beverly Hills, you know, it's a great situation and proud of myself. And I even took the time before she came to stop from some of my studies and to clear out a closet for her. Awesome. Right? As time went on, you know, the realization comes in. Yeah, there might have been a closet, there might be a closet there. Yeah, she's she's living with me. But the problem wasn't the closet problem was me and all my junk. All my junk that was still in the house and all the junk that was still in my life. And as time went on, it became clear that for her to live in that house, for her to love, to, for her to express herself and to express her love for me, there wasn't an awful lot of room to move around. And it was later confided to me in not so many words that many times she felt like a guest, right? And we look at that, and yes, I was a fool and an idiot, okay? And I needed to mature in countless different ways. I had this great person and this great love that had moved in, and it was being strangled by all my garbage, right? And for that relationship to grow, brothers and sisters, and I'll make a distinction here. I mean, there's limits to the illustration. Julie is not my God, okay? But for that relationship to grow, I needed to mature, and there were things in my home, and there were things in my life, and there were patterns that needed to be moved out in order to make room for Julie and for her love to grow and for that unity in our lives to grow. And in a small way, the Apostle Paul is making reference here very much when he says, and he talks about that Christ may dwell in your hearts, that word dwell that he's talking about is about this idea of someone coming in and making a place their home, but also ruling over that home, that that house is arranged and assembled according to their desires and priorities and agenda. 
It's the idea that Christ would come in and that your heart would become his throne room. And that is just the beginning because he needs to do a complete makeover and job rehab from inside out of this life that we call our home. Brothers and sisters, when we invite Christ into our heart and our lives, he's more than just a guest. And years later, brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves as we look at all the things that fill our lives, is he still just a guest who's got a little closet room? Or has he indeed day by day grown and become the king and Lord of our lives? Is our unity in Christ growing? When Paul asks for the power of the Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts, he's also, I believe, alluding to this spiritual process and battle. Because our idols and our sinful desires do not want to leave. And according to God's word, there's only one way that Christ can come in and dwell and grow in our lives. Verse 17, it's through faith. It's a submission and surrender to God as Father. It's a submission and surrender to Christ as Lord. And it's a yielding to the work of the Spirit, not grieving him, but yielding to him and allowing him to come in and destroy and remove the idols in our lives that separate us from the love of God and Christ. And when, brothers and sisters, we yield to the love of God and Christ that's expressed through simply obedience to his word, Christ reigns because he refuses to live with our idols. And he becomes our rock and our foundation that verse 17b roots and grounds us not in the love of our sinful desires, but in the love of God. And brothers and sisters, that is a sweet day. It comes by way of the cross. It is painful, but it sets us free from what's destroying our lives and our fellowship with the Lord and destroying our fellowship with one another. And as we walk through this, as we go through this, our appreciation and our experience of Christ grows. Yes, it is by way of the cross. Yes, it is by way of obedience. But through that, brothers and sisters, we begin to see and appreciate how much Christ loves us. And more often than not, brothers and sisters, it's not until we come to the other side. When we've been through the valley and we come out, we've seen the pain, we've gone through that loss that comes from being separated from something that had a hold on our lives. It's not then typically that we begin to see. It's when we come out the other side and we look back at what Christ has set us free from and we begin to see how much he loved us, how much he put up with us, how much patience he had in our unholiness and our immaturity. And we begin to have a taste of a love, brothers and sisters, that is beyond comprehension and understanding. And this ultimately is God's desire for your life. He does not bring trials and tribulations into your life because he's having a good time. He does not enjoy seeing us suffer 
But brothers and sisters, sometimes these things are necessary in our lives to get our attention to the things that have a grip and hold on us, but also to open our eyes by faith that the world cannot solve our problems, our friends cannot solve our problems, your pastor cannot solve your problems. But indeed, the one who died for you can. And this, brothers and sisters, brings us to our final point for this morning. Gospel prayer brings true hope and praise in Christ. Gospel prayer brings true hope and praise in Christ. God's end for you to appreciate his love and for Christ to dwell in your heart and to grow in the appreciation of Christ. Well, there's only one way. Christ's presence in your life. And God's end in that is that your life would be filled with the fullness of God. Everything that God is. And that includes his righteousness and his love. But the hope that comes from this, brothers and sisters, which separates from all other religions of the world, Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to what? How great our prayer is? No, according to the power at work within us. Brothers and sisters, so much of our discouragement in life and our disappointments comes from our denial that we are fallen people living in a fallen world. But it also comes from a denial that there is a God who has loved us perfectly. He has proven it on the cross. And his love for us and the presence of his son in our lives is sufficient and powerful for everything we need to be pleasing to God and to enjoy him minute by minute and moment by moment. And the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is even though we frequently don't see it, God is not done working with us. And our hope, brothers and sisters, is not in us. Just look at our salvation, look at our presence here, look at our marriages, our lives, our families. It's not because we were bright, gifted, or we had huge amounts of Bible knowledge. It's while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's God's intervention in our lives. It is the work of a God who can do far and above anything that we would ever hope and ask for. Because when we got saved, brothers and sisters, we weren't thinking about it. And by extension, when you look at the best things in your life that God has brought into them, it's the same. Friendships, relationships, typically they weren't things that you weren't going out hustling and looking for. They were things that out of the blue, by God's grace, he intervened and he stepped in. Why? Because he's a good father. And because he knows what his children need better than they do, and he is able to do far and above anything we could hope or and imagine. And Paul points out, this is the power that's at work within us, the power of the gospel. But then he goes on and points out, where has God focused this? It's in the local church. It's in the local church, brothers and sisters, because the local church that is united with Christ is the place where Christ reigns and presides, and it is the place that is sufficient and powerful. Why? Not because of us and not because you and I, because this is where Christ has chosen to love his people. Brothers and sisters, our greatest need is to grow in our unity with Christ. So the first question is, are we united with Christ? 
Second thing we need to consider is what are some of the things in our lives that we need to let go of? And we need to look to the Lord and ask for his help because it's separating us from our relationship with the Lord, but also from our relationship with one another. And you know how the devil works. We've talked about this frequently, how he takes good things, family, family activities, work, all good things, all things in ministry. And Satan can come, and if he's not going to come through the front door, we don't let him in, he'll come through the back door, and those things can become our idols, respectable as they are, and begin to separate us from what's most important, which is Christ's presence in your life and mine, and growing in an appreciation of his love for us because we're united with him. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you, as it is for me, is that we will grow in our love for Christ, but that's only going to happen through our unity in Christ. So one final application, if I could have my last slide. How do we grow in loving and serving Christ's church together? There's only one way. Maturity, brothers and sisters, is about growing in our relationship, our intimacy with Christ. And so I want to exhort you. We are so busy in this life. We're so busy in our prayers. Take time, like the Apostle Paul did, to meditate on the greatness of our God, but the greatness of his love for you. That's the gospel. How often do we stop and take those moments just to think and stop and not think, what do I need to do or what do I need to ask for? Because so many of our prayers can be driven by what we need or what we have to do, but just to enjoy the greatness of our God and the greatness of his perfect love in Christ for you. We need to pray that we will grow in the love of Christ in every aspect of our lives, our marriages, the shepherding of our children, our ministries, every aspect, but especially those things that are most important. And finally, what is God calling me to put off and put on so that we can walk more freely in the love of the one who loves us perfectly. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for your desire and love for us, a desire and love that we would know you and that we would know your love and that we would begin to appreciate the extent of the power that is at work in us because of what you accomplished on the cross. Thank you for your mercy and grace and for everyone who's here this day, Lord. May we know it and may we enjoy it this day and may we celebrate it. In your name we pray, amen.